Welcome to the Together for Good podcast brought to you by Bethany Lutheran Church in Cherry Hills Village, Colorado. Today's episode is a Bible study, and here's how this one's going to work. This is a Bible study on Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. This is Mark's resurrection account, and it is the Easter season, so it seems good and appropriate to read this passage and look at it carefully. We've already studied Luke's version of the resurrection story, but here's the other reason why I'm recording this Bible study podcast. This coming Sunday, we will be hearing this gospel passage read in church. For the astute listener out there, you might be saying to yourself, wait a second, we read Mark chapter 16 on Easter Sunday. You're absolutely right. Why in the world would we read it again? Well, this Sunday at Bethany, we will have a Bach cantata um, played as part of our worship service. This is a really special, really excellent piece of music. We only do this twice a year or so. And when Bach wrote this particular piece of music that we'll hear on Sunday as part of worship, he had... Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8 in mind. That's part of where his influence comes from. So I thought it would be good to just look really carefully at this Bible passage in preparation for our Sunday worship time together. Uh, Also, it's going to help me prepare for my sermon. So hey, why not? Um, But I do hope um, that it's informative, that it's interesting, that you learn something new through this process, and that you do join us uh, for worship on Sunday, whether you watch the live stream or if you're able to attend in person. We'd love to have you for that extra special uh, Bach cantata this coming Sunday, April the 25th. That's a lot. That's more than I usually say at the beginning of this podcast. So let's get right to it. Here's a Bible study on Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. All right, everyone, buckle up. It is Bible study time. I love doing these types of episodes because it gives me a chance to share with you so much information that I could never possibly pack into a sermon. Hopefully you find it interesting and valuable, but if nothing else, it just illustrates the ways that the scriptures are so full of significance and meaning and that there's just so much good stuff to unpack when we can look at it carefully and slowly. You, You might know the glossing of the story, but you can keep coming back to a story again and again and again and, and learn something new each and every time. Have a new way of looking at life and your life of faith in the world around you. And, and so I'm hoping that that's what this can accomplish. Today we are looking at Mark chapter 16 verse 1 through 8. This is Mark's version of the resurrection story. We're going to read through it one verse at a time, as you know I like to do. And I think you'll just be amazed at how much detail there is in these short verses. Again, there's so much to unpack. Before I jump in, though, a brief reminder about the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is likely the very first Gospel that was ever written down. Of the four that we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Mark is the shortest, and it uses the word immediately all the time. That's the key word of Mark's gospel. Immediately, there's this sense of urgency to Mark's writing. And again, scholars believe it was the first one that was ever written down. They believe that Mark just really wanted to get the story out there, that he had a sense of urgency to sharing these stories. More than likely, just again, scholars kind of 
put pieces together and they have all sorts of smart ways of coming to these determinations. But just to give you the details, many m most people would believe that Mark was written down first and that it kind of was written at a time when the first generation of Christians was dying off. So think about the situation. You have this group of people who call themselves Christians now or followers of the way was also a common phrase back then. And they've been telling these stories in community for decades about Jesus, who Jesus was, what he did, his death and his resurrection. And they tell these stories in these small Christian house churches at the time. But then they start to get older. They're starting to you know, have members who are dying off and they realize, you know what? We've been telling these stories together, but we probably should write this down so that future generations can also know. And so that's very much so what's happening as Mark writes his gospel down. It's coming to the end of that first generation, and he wants to make sure that future generations know these stories that his community has been sharing for decades at that point in time. So I give you all of that as a backdrop, and, and, and I promise you a lot of those details will become very significant when we get to the end of this Bible study today. And you'll, you'll see why. Hopefully I'm able to connect all the dots for you. But let's jump right in to Mark chapter 16, and we start at verse 1. We read there, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus. So in this first verse, we hear the mention of three women, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome. And what you might not know is that those three women are also specifically mentioned during Mark's account of the crucifixion. Throughout this passage, Mark does some subtle things to really draw parallels between what happened at the crucifixion and what happens on the first day of the week. These two events are very intertwined in Mark's mind. And, and that's significant because, as I said, Mark is the shortest gospel, but he spends about two full chapters just talking about the crucifixion. Clearly, that's a very important event. And so then for Mark to tie in the resurrection, it's clear that the crucifixion resurrection is almost one event in his mind and that the two really go together. Um, and are extremely significant and important for future generations to know about. And so what we also get in this ver this first verse, not just the mention of the three women, but what they're going to do. They're going to anoint the body. And, and this is something that you would do for someone you really loved and cherished. This is one final act of service that you can offer to the departed. And so that's what the women want to do for Jesus. Clearly, they were close followers, close friends, and Jesus played a significant and important role in their lives. That's why they're going to anoint the body. And finally, we hear that, you know, the first line, when the Sabbath was over. It's letting you know that these three women are devout Jews, that they were observing, observant of the Jewish customs and the religious laws that prevented them from doing any form of work on the Sabbath, including anointing a body. So they're observant Jews, but, but also it creates this neat little connection that's been written about in a bunch of places where many people often think about the ways that Jesus's death and resurrection mirrors the rhythms of creation that God established in the beginning. God created in six days and then rested on the seventh. And in the same way, Jesus did all of his ministry, but then was in the tomb on the Sabbath day. That was his own form of rest. 
And then what we get on Easter morning is the recreation of the world, the new beginning, the new life that comes next. I'm getting ahead of myself because that point comes out in our second verse. Here we go. Verse number two reads, And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, the women went to the tomb. So this is simply telling us that the women went right away. They waited. They they really wanted to go and and, and perform this act for Jesus's body, but they were good observant Jews. So they waited just until the sun had risen, which is the exact moment when the Sabbath is ended. So they're very careful about managing those details. But we also are told a second time, right? When the Sabbath was over, we hear that mentioned in the first verse. And then in the second verse, on on the first day of the week, And so it goes back to what I was saying just a few minutes ago about people seeing the resurrection as a new beginning of God starting creation over again. I've talked in previous podcasts about this idea of the eighth day of creation. God created the world in six days, rested on the seventh. And then the eighth day, the eighth day of creation is the day of re-creation, new beginnings. Jesus inaugurating some new stage in the creation story. I think I mentioned this in the podcast from on Luke's version of the resurrection story, but baptismal fonts are often eight-sided in or as a recognition of this eighth day of creation idea. At our baptism, that is when we are recreated, when new life begins in us. Therefore, we should make baptismal fonts that look like a stop sign. (laughs) But it's not a stopping, it's just a beginning. It's an octagon, an eight-sided, eighth-day architectural feature. All right, moving on to verse 3 now. The women had been saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? Tombs had these big stones in front of them, and they were very, very heavy and impossible to move on your own. They actually kind of fit into a tomb like a like a cork. It's not like a big disc in front that we usually see. More than likely, the tomb that Jesus had been in was one that had more of like a cork-shaped closing to the tomb. And this is what the women are most concerned about. Isn't that interesting? Their chief concern is who's going to roll away the stone so that we can anoint the body when, lo and behold, there's a lot more that's going to be taking place before their eyes. They have much bigger concerns on their hands than just who's going to roll away the stone. We get to verse 4 now. When the women looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. So Mark reiterates the size of the stone thus underlying the women's concern in the previous verse. But what Mark also does here is this really interesting grammatical feature that if you read the original Greek, or I mean, you can even really see it um, in the way that it's written and translated into English. But Mark uses the passive voice here. And throughout Mark's gospel, he'll often use the passive voice when he's speaking about God. The passive voice is a way for you to kind of bury the lead. Uh, They tell you in writing not to use passive voice. So I would write, Nate cooks dinner. Uh, That's active voice. It's very direct. Who does it? What did they do? And, and, And what's happening? Nate cooks dinner. But the passive voice is where you'd put the, I believe they'd say you put the object in the beginning of the sentence. So dinner had been cooked by Nate. That's passive voice. And you can kind of hear how it's not, as direct. It's not as efficient. It it seems almost a little, yeah, it's passive (laughs) in really clear sense of the word. And so what Mark does here is he says, the stone had already been rolled back. 
In Judaism, we need to remember that there's this great sense of reverence for God and God's name. In fact, the the name for God should not ever be spoken in Judaism. And and that's a, a real act of devotion and piety. The legend has it that when individuals would be translating the scriptures, when they would write God's name in, you know, if there's a Bible passage that included God's name, when they would write it, they would throw away that quill and get a new quill out of reverence for God's name. And so Mark seems to have some of this because when he speaks about God's action, he almost always uses the passive voice. And, and, and for oftentimes he doesn't even name God. It's a way for him to avoid having to use God's name. And yet it's a subtle wink to the reader to say, yes, I'm using passive voice here, which isn't the best way to be writing, but it's so you will understand that it was God who was active. The stone had been rolled back is the way that we read it. But that's really Mark kind of telling us, by the way, God rolled away the stone. I just don't like to say God's name out of reverence for God. All right, moving on to verse five now. As the women entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. And they were alarmed. Of course, who wouldn't be? There's a lot going on. As I said, much more to worry about than just rolling away the stone. This is, though, another example of the way that Mark is intertwined the resurrection. In Mark chapter 14, verses 51 through 52, there's this mention of a young man fleeing Gethsemane. And it just, it's such a strange verse. It doesn't seem to really fit. And so what scholars often wonder is like, well, is this the same young man? Maybe, or maybe it's just a literary device that Mark is using, making mention of a young man fleeing Gethsemane and then describing the angel as a young man as a way to intertwine and link the crucifixion events with the resurrection. Again, so that we'll see them as just one big seismic world-changing event. The mention of a white robe is also helping us to understand that this is not just a young man, uh, that this is someone of angelic qualities. In Mark's gospel, the transfiguration is a really key moment and key story within the way he writes it. It's in Mark, it's kind of in the middle of Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 9, sort of the the midpoint, the, the crux of the story in some ways, um, where everything that happens before it is completely changed at the transfiguration, and then suddenly Jesus comes down the mountain and is clearly headed towards Jerusalem where he will suffer and die. That's kind of how Mark's gospel is laid out. But at the transfiguration, I'm mentioning this because they specifically say, Mark specifically says, that Jesus' clothes became dazzling white. And even Elijah and Moses are described in similar detail. And so there's the sense of the the otherworldly, of, of something amazing happening at the transfiguration. And now similarly, we get a, 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 another detail to that effect, uh, describing this young man who is in the tomb when the women come on the first day of the week. Also, just to further illustrate the point, they, Mark specifically says the man was seated on the right-hand side. Further, this reference to the idea that the Son of Man would be exalted and sit at the right hand of God. That's very much so how the Old Testament speaks to who the Son of Man is and what the Son of Man will do. That that's the end point for this prophecy. Okay, now, moving on to verse 6. But the man said to the women, do not be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place they laid him. 
the angel, again, further underlying his uh, divine presence and characteristics, he already knows the fears and the purpose of the women. And he specifically mentions Jesus of Nazareth. And that's a key, that's a key detail here. Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He's giving you all of the information about Jesus. This is Mark's kind of way of saying, hey, I know what you're thinking. And no, the women didn't just go to the wrong tomb. <laughs> By the, having the angel say, Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified? He's giving you a lot of biographical details about Jesus and making it very clear that this was Jesus's tomb, not just some other random tomb that the women accidentally ended up at. So that's all very important. And um, the women are looking for Jesus and are told to look at the empty tomb. That's a really profound statement to look at this emptiness. It, it, it almost doesn't make sense. When you want to see something, when you want to know something, you look for that something, not in emptiness, not a void. But that's part of Mark's point here, is that even in the voids is the presence of God, the presence of the resurrected Jesus. The community to whom Mark was writing would have understood that you can see Jesus through his completed work that you don't necessarily have to see the physical manifestation of the resurrected Jesus in order to be a believer in his message. We know that, don't we? I don't know of anyone um, that I've encountered yet here at Bethany who, who says that they have seen the bodily resurrected Jesus in their midst. And yet, we still believe this story. We have seen the, the truth of Jesus's resurrection all around us in many and various ways. That's the point that Mark's really trying to make here, too, is that just looking at the empty tomb, looking at the completed work of Jesus's presence, that can be enough for faith, for believing that this is all true. You don't have to physically see Jesus to know that he has accomplished his work. Okay, we're really getting into the good stuff. Hold those thoughts because that's going to become particularly important moving on to how Mark ends all this. We read now in verse 7. The angel continued, But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So the angel now gives the women very clear instructions. Go and tell the disciples. And the direction really seems to underline the disciples' failures to believe and understand Jesus's message and mission. And it provides the readers of the gospel account with their own directive as well. In those days, it would have been so important to tell the story of Jesus and share it with others. That work of evangelism is obviously still very important to our life of faith today. But in those days, Christianity was the extreme minority. It was not the dominant culture. Uh, most people probably hadn't even heard of this new religion yet. And so the directive to go and tell, yeah, it was the angel speaking to the women, but the readers would have also understood that that was a directive for them too. They are to go and tell of the empty tomb and what Christ had accomplished. And so the angel also makes some pretty key points um, about, well, I should back up here for a second. They say, go tell his disciples and Peter. And so that's a key moment too. You'll remember Peter is the one who denied knowing Jesus at all 
in the midst of Jesus's trial and crucifixion. And so Peter is very much so portrayed in Mark's gospel, that, that detail is there, as uh, being a real failure, someone who really let Jesus down. Obviously, yeah, all the disciples kind of let Jesus down, but we have a, a story in Mark that particularly articulates um, the specifics of his failure. And so for the angel to say, you know, his disciples and Peter, it kind of clues you in onto what Jesus is going to do in the future. Jesus is going to redeem these people. Part of the resurrection will be restoring community and this group that's gathered together. Part of the resurrection will be uh, gathering them all together once again. And so, and so that's hugely important, hugely important be, because it, it, of what it would mean for Peter, the chance to redeem and make up for his mistakes, to have Jesus forgive him. All of that, as we know, is tied up in our understanding of what the resurrection has accomplished. But the way the angel is saying it, it, it's articulating that detail for us very specifically here. And then additionally, the verse indicates that Jesus is going ahead and that he'll be in Galilee. The angel is telling about a future reunion with Jesus. And that's so much how I think we should understand the resurrection is that it has real hope for our life today that yeah isn't so much of what we believe about heaven and what happens after we die it comes i think from here in a lot of ways from what the angel is telling them jesus is going to be going on ahead of us that's part of what we put our trust and our hope in is that after this life is over jesus is already there in the future pulling us into the future gathering us reuniting us all of that is seen in this little verse in verse 7 in Mark's resurrection account. And so the only other piece that I got to bring out, can, can, do you see how much detail is in here? The Bible's so cool. <laughs> the other point I want to bring out, he says, Jesus is going ahead of you. He'll be in Galilee waiting for you. And that's significant because Galilee is where the Gentiles are. Galilee is not the main Jewish hub of the community. There were definitely Jews in Galilee. Uh, but whenever Galilee is mentioned during um, Jesus's ministry and Jesus's time, it's always uh, the, the author's point, whatever gospel you're reading, when they mention Galilee is like that other place where the outsiders are. And how important is it that the angel says that's where Jesus is going? And so you can think, too, about how significant that would be for the first group of Christians who really understood their mission to be to carry the message of Jesus from Jerusalem to the corners of the earth all different places and all different people. Jesus's message wasn't just for the Jewish community. It's for everyone. And that little detail about Galilee is absolutely exactly what Mark is getting at by mentioning it there. It's what the angel meant when he said that. And so we come to the last verse, verse eight. And in verse eight, we read, so they went out and fled from the tomb for terror and amazement had seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid so the women are kind of 
left here as not doing what they're told. What's going on? Um, Pastor Gary mentioned this detail in his Easter sermon. Obviously, yeah, the, the women probably did eventually tell someone um, because they, uh, because we have these stories and they were carried on by Mark's community and Luke's community and John's and Matthew's. But the fear here is the underlying element of the women's response to it all. In Mark's gospel, fear and unfaithfulness are often linked. And so that's very much one way to interpret this verse, is that the women were unfaithful to what the angel had directed them to do. At first, the women lacked the faith to embrace this message. And here's what's significant about that. I I told you this is the last verse we're reading. This is very much so thought to be the end of Mark's gospel. People believe, most scholars believe, that this is where Mark ended his writing down of the Jesus story. Just with women not sharing, seized by fear, and saying nothing to anyone. Now, that might seem like the strangest ending ever. And additionally, you'll notice they haven't seen the resurrected Jesus yet. All they've seen is the empty tomb. But now I want us to think about all these details that I've been mentioning throughout this podcast. Mark was writing to a specific group of people. And he was writing to a group of people who struggled with their own unfaithfulness and fear. He was writing to a group of people who weren't direct witnesses of the resurrection, and yet who still considered themselves to be people of faith, much like you and me. And so I think, and a lot of scholars agree, that Mark's gospel here, that his ending is very much so intended to be a, 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 a drawing in of the reader. It, it's almost as if Mark ended this with an ellipsis. You know, the three dots, dot, 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 to be continued. Okay, so the women were unfaithful. They didn't say anything to anyone. But you, dear reader, how will you respond? That very much seems to be how Mark intended to end his gospel. In fact, if you look at the original Greek, the last word of verse 8 is a preposition. And as you know, you shouldn't put a preposition. We're doing a lot of grammar lessons today. You shouldn't put a preposition at the end of a sentence. Um, And in fact, the the preposition that they use in particular at the end of Mark's gospel almost always includes a second clause afterwards. So it really has this to-be-continued sense of it all, that Mark is putting it in the reader's hands. Okay, now that you've heard the story... And you've heard about the empty tomb, about how Jesus accomplished what he said he would do. Even if you don't see the resurrected Jesus in person, how are you going to respond? What will, will you respond with fear and unfaithfulness? Or will you go and tell like the angel said? There's so much that we can think about with that uh, and how this affects our life and our life of faith and, and, and our understanding of the resurrection story too. I'm really glad that we have the other Gospels that give us real stories about Jesus appearing to his disciples in resurrected form. But I really appreciate Mark's interesting take on the entire story. I should mention, you're probably going to look in your Bibles and say, wait a second, there's totally more verses after this, uh, depending on if your Bible has headings or not. Um, verse, There's a part two to verse eight that even says the shorter ending of Mark 
And then um, there's even an additional verses 9 through 20 where it says the longer ending of Mark. And it is almost universally agreed by biblical scholars that those were later editions. And, and in fact, as they found very old copies of the um, of manuscripts of Mark's gospel, they all end at verse 8. And, and I think that that, um, I frankly like that better. <laughs> like I said, I'm glad we have other gospels so we can get some resurrection stories as well. But there's something really poignant about the way Mark writes this, about putting that dot, dot, dot at the end and, and leaving the question very much in our hands. Are we going to be comfortable enough to believe this story just based on the empty tomb? Is that enough for us? Do we have to see a bodily resurrected Jesus in our midst to truly be a person of faith and a believer? Obviously, we don't because we're all we're all in this together, living this life of faith. And and yet we've seen what well, we haven't seen the physically resurrected Jesus, as I said, we've seen all of the moments and all of the ways that the resurrected Jesus is clearly active in our world, completing the work of redemption and reconciliation and reunion. And not only that, we live with the hope of that reunion in the future that the angel spoke to. Go to Galilee and there Jesus will meet you. Jesus is already in the future waiting for us to lovingly welcome us into whatever comes next. So there you go. Mark's version of the resurrection story only eight verses, but my goodness, is there a lot to say about them. I hope you enjoyed this. Um, I hope you share this with friends too, uh, other people who might be looking for some Bible studies, things they can listen to on their drive to work or out on a walk or on a run. Um, I hope this is helpful and meaningful. I'll be happy to do some more Bible studies in the future. Thanks for listening, everyone. Stay in peace.